Acts chapter 15, I want to read verses 1 through 4. But some men came down from Judea and were teaching the brothers, unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. And after Paul and Barnabas had no small dissension and debate with them, Paul and Barnabas and some of the others were appointed to go up to Jerusalem to the apostles and to the elders about this question. Now notice verse 3. So being sent on their way by the church, they passed through both Phoenicia and Samaria, describing in detail the conversion of the Gentiles and brought great joy to all the brothers. When they came to Jerusalem, they were welcomed by the church and the apostles and the elders, and they declared all that God had done with them. This is God's word. You'll see a picture of Mount Washington United Methodist Church here in town. As we pray for us, let's do two things. One, let's be thankful that they haven't gone the way of some other branches of the Methodist Church. Methodist Church is struggling really big time over over sexual issues. And we thank God that the congregation here in town is holding true to God's word. Uh, and so let's thank God for them, for the work that they're doing, and pray for them as we pray for ourselves. Heavenly Father, we are grateful for your word today. Uh, not just information. We certainly hope to gain information, but we pray that by the power of the Spirit, it will lead to transformation. Transform lives. We will not leave the same as we came. We want to thank you for uh, Pastor Steve Bartell and the congregation at uh, Mount Washington United Methodist. They face a fierce headwind of opposition, even in with their own denomination. Um, and so we pray that they'll stand strong, that they will stand strong and they will they will be compassionate, but they will not compromise when it comes to biblical truth. We pray for them today. May they receive blessing from your word and we as well. In Jesus' name, amen. T.S. Eliot was a famous English poet. If you're into poetry, you're probably familiar with T.S. Eliot. He uh, once belonged to a group of artists and intellectuals, which included as its leader a writer named Virginia Woolf. Virginia Woolf uh, is an, another writer, uh, an author of novels. And she was the leader of this group of artists and intellectuals. And something happened, something happened in this group that severed Eliot's connection to the group. They no longer wanted him. And we know exactly what happened because we have a letter that was written by Virginia Woolf to one of the other members of the group. Here's what she said. I've had a most shameful and distressing interview with dear Tom Elliott, who may be called dead to us all from this day forward. He has become a believer in God and immortality, and he goes to church. I was shocked. A corpse would seem more credible than he is. I mean, there's something obscene in a living person sitting by the fire and believing in God. She come unglued. Why? I mean, why was she so bothered by what had happened to T.S. Eliot. You might say, well, you know, she's bothered because he believed in God. Oh, that's not it. That's not it. That's not it at all. You see, you can believe in God and be the same old person you've always been. We see it every day. We see people every day who say, I believe in God, but they're the same unregenerate, unconverted person that they've always been. So it's not just because he believed in God. No, T.S. Eliot 
experienced Christian conversion. He experienced Christian conversion. He became a Christian. He became public about his faith in Jesus Christ and was baptized and actually began to attend church. And it tore Virginia Woolf up. She couldn't deal with it. And uh, is that the way to respond to Christian conversion? Well, we get a good example of, of how believers respond to it in, in our text today. Did you notice Paul and Barnabas are making a 250-mile journey from Antioch down to Jerusalem. Now, uh, according to those days, travel, would, that would have been about a month. And so along the way, they were stopping in at some of the churches to visit some of the believers. And as they did, here's what they, here's what they told them. They described in detail. Do you see that in verse 3? They described in detail the, de- the conversion of the Gentiles. What that means is they were there, they would stop in, they said, let me tell you some stories. Let me tell you and give you detail about how these Gentiles who were lost, who were, who were prisoners and slaves to sin, how they were converted. Let me tell you these stories. Now, friend, I tell you what, I don't know about you, but I would have loved to have been there that day and heard those stories. And, and you know why they were so great? Because we see in verse 3, it said, and it brought joy, great joy to all the brothers. In other words, when they heard about the conversion of others, they rejoiced. And what a contrast to the response that Virginia Woolf had. Why are there people like Virginia Woolf in the world and others today who are so opposed to Christian conversion? Now, in a moment, we're going to look at what conversion is, okay? But let me just ask you a question. Why do you think that people are so opposed to Christian conversion? Well, I... I have a couple of answers that, that come to my mind. One of them is, is moralism. Moralism. Moralism is that stance that says, I am a good person. I don't live in San Francisco. I don't live in New York. I live in Bullock County. <laughs> I am a good person. And I can be a good Christian without giving up things. I can be a good Christian without going to church. I can be a good Christian and still do the same old things that I've always done. My life doesn't really have to change because really there's only a few things that are wrong with me. I know I have a few things, but at my core, I'm really a good person. That's moralism. That's moralism. And moralism is an arch enemy against genuine Christian conversion. So that's one reason why many people are not real hep on Christian conversion because they think you've gone off the deep end. They think you've become a fanatic, you know, that all that's really necessary is just be a good person. You don't really, really need to convert. Then a second, a second enemy of Christian conversion is what we might call biological genetic determinism. We hear a lot of this today. It sounds like this. This is the way I am. I was born this way. Why should I change? My genes are fixed. You, you tell me that I have to change? I was born this way. See, uh, that, that is a great enemy to Christian conversion. Because people say, look, with all the brain scans and the, you know, the, all the different genetic work they're doing, they're finding out that, look, you know, I, just, I was just born this way, which is not, not true. You need, you need to beware. <laughs> Beware of what you hear over the news when it comes to these kind of matters. Let me give you an example of why, of why this is a big deal. About two weeks ago at Harvard University, a group called Harvard College Faith and Action invited 
a young African-American poet by the name of Jackie Hill Perry. Jackie Hill Perry uh, converted to Christianity from a life of lesbianism. She's public now about her faith in Christ. And she was invited by this group. And once it became public that she was coming, many of the students and professors got together and said, we got to stop this. She cannot come here. You know, in the land of free speech and tolerance and all that kind of stuff, all of a sudden it doesn't work both ways. And so they were like, look, she can't come. Well, it turned out that she came. And so that still did not stop them. They heckled her all the way through her presentation. Why? Why? Because of Christian conversion. If she, if she just said, look, I'm a lesbian and I sleep with donkeys and I, 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 I'm, I'm off the chart, I'm off the chart free and do whatever I want to do, then that would have been fine. You're welcome here. But, but no, no, not, not a Christian convert. No. So folks, we live, we live in a time right now where Christian conversion is not something we're ha- people are happy about. We're happy about it. We should be. We should be happy about genuine Christian conversion. And so here's what we're going to do today. Because, you, know, here, you might say, why are we going to talk about conversion? Because you might say, well, I'm converted. I'm already a Christian. Wonderful. I hope you are. And before you leave, I'm going to be asking you that. Are you, are you converted? But here's the thing. If you are you're going to hear some things today that will help you to guard against false conversions. I'm just going to say it. Churches across America, and we're not, we're, not, you know, we're not exempt from this. There are people in churches all across the world who are unconverted. They're moral people, religious people, but they've never experienced Christian conversion. And so we need to look at what is conversion. Then we're going to take a moment to look at the human and divine aspect of it. In other words, how does it happen? You know, who... Who does what, you see? And then, then we're going to look at a very important question. And some folks at the end of the 9 a.m. service told me, said this, this is what helped them greatly. And we're going to look at this question. Why do converted people sometimes look unconverted? So first, what is conversion? And I want you, I want you to think about it this way. This will help, I think. Uh, the United States, Liberia, and Myanmar are the only three countries in the world who do not use the metric system. What do we mean by that? Well, just think about it this way. We use miles where others use kilometers. And so let's say that you were asked how many miles are in 75 kilometers. And we, we probably wouldn't know that right off the top of our head. But you can learn by getting a conversion calculator. A conversion calculator will turn kilometers into miles or Say it this way, a conversion calculator will convert kilometers into miles. Now, right there, just the way I explain that, you ought to go, I bet conversion means turning. You're right. Conversion is turning from to. Conversion is turning from something to something. But now, let's get more specific. Christian conversion. Christian conversion is turning from sin to Christ. Let's get even more specific. Turning from sin is called repentance. You read about that in the scriptures. We'll talk about it in just a moment. So turning from sin is called repentance. Turning to Christ is called faith or trust or belief. 
true conversion includes both. If you and I ever hope to have true conversion, it must include both ingredients of repentance and faith. Not one without the other. How do we know that? Let me give you a couple examples. In Acts chapter 26, Christ is sending Paul to the Gentiles to preach the gospel. He says this, to open their eyes so that they may turn from darkness to light and from the power of Satan to God, that they may receive forgiveness of sins and a place among those who are sanctified by faith in me. You see there, there's both those ingredients, a turning from, a turning from, and a turning to. That's Christian conversion. Then notice the words of Jesus in Mark chapter 1. The time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. Now notice, there are both ingredients. One must repent and believe. There's repentance and faith. So true conversion includes both faith and repentance. So let's take a moment to, to, to open up just a little bit about and consider what, what biblical faith is. Faith involves knowledge. It's more than knowledge, but it's not less than knowledge. Biblical faith involves knowledge. For example, in Romans chapter 10, we read these words. How are they to believe in him? How, do they, how are they to believe in Christ? How are they to put faith in Christ of whom they have never heard? So what God wants us to know is, is he is going to make available what we need to know, the facts about the gospel, about Christ, what Christ has done, who he is, you see. So, so biblical faith includes knowledge, but it's more than knowledge. For example, in James chapter 2, we read this. You believe that God is one. You do well. Even the demons believe and shudder. Now, I think we'd all agree that whatever knowledge the demons have, that it certainly does not mean demons are saved, right? So, so in other words, you can have knowledge. You can know facts, but still remain unconverted. Let's go a step further. You can also know certain facts about Jesus and agree that they are true. Now, this past Wednesday night, we talked about the question, am I a Christian? And there's some, you know, there's some we find, we're finding out that there are some who say, I'm a Christian, but I don't believe in the resurrection of Jesus. And so they say, am I a Christian if I don't believe that? Well, now let's flip it around and let's say you do. Let's say you do. I, you say, I believe in the resurrection. Sure, I believe that happened. In other words, you, you, you know this particular fact and you agree with it, and that's good. You can do all of that and still not be trusting in Christ. Do you understand? You, you can know certain things. You can even agree with these things and still not be trusting Christ. Ultimately, it comes down to this. Biblical faith is putting personal trust in Jesus to save you. Have you done that? Have you done that? If you haven't, no matter what you may be thinking and saying, that is not biblical faith. Biblical faith is, yes, no, having knowledge about Christ and knowing facts and agreeing with those facts, but then it extends to putting personal faith in Jesus Christ. 
So that's one ingredient of biblical conversion, faith. But then there's repentance. Let's unpack that for just a moment. A great verse that will help us to understand what repentance is is found in 1 Thessalonians chapter 1. Paul is writing to a church that has come to faith in Christ. And here's what he says. Your faith in God has gone forth everywhere. You, how you turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God. Notice here we have the word turn, okay? What did they, they turn to and from, you see? So there, there it is, there, there's conversion. Paul is saying, here's your conversion. You've, you've turned to God, you've turned from idols. So here's the first thing we need to recognize. Repentance means exchanging our idols for God. Changing our false idols to trust in the living God. Now, I hope you know, after going here long enough, I hope you know that when we say idols, we're not talking about some statues and that sort of thing. We're talking about what's go- the idols of the heart. We're talking about what really has the title to your heart, you see. See, we, we know this, that before repentance, before it's ever a behavioral change, it must be a change in worship. See, a person, a person can come to church, a person can can have an outward show of religion, yet inwardly, their heart, the very, the very person that they are, something else can own the title to that. All the while, they're doing religious stuff, and they're looking religious outwardly, but inwardly, you see, something's wrong. They're serving something other than God, and that is an idol. That's what we mean by idol. See, even if you clean up your behavior, Something else can hold the title to your heart. Change behavior, which is certainly something that comes. It's a result, but it's a result in a change of your object of worship. So it's not repentance. Christian, Christian life is not about, okay, I don't do this anymore, and I don't do this anymore, and I've started doing this and started doing this. No, it, starts, it starts with a, a change of worship, a change of who has the title to your heart. And once... Once you have come to faith in Christ, your attitude about Jesus has changed. He's no longer just a figure in history. You know, oh, yeah, the guy who hung on the cross. And, you know, that story about him rising from the dead and coming back again, it seems all kind of vague and, you know, just uh, abstract. And, and so, no, when you come to faith and you put personal faith in Jesus, you now, your attitude about Jesus has changed and you submit to his authority in loving obedience. This is, this is a verse that you need to look at very close with me in John chapter 3. Notice how it's put. Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. You, you, you really don't, in our culture, you don't really have a hard time getting someone to say they believe. Do you believe in Jesus? You know, it's kind of like the commercial. Huh. Do you want a line? Do you want a line? <laughs> you got a line. You know. Do you believe? Yep. Yep, I believe. But notice here. It says, whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the Son. You cannot separate those two. You cannot separate those two. Many people try. At least a false conversion. It's believing and obeying. So repentance is a radical rejection of the way of sin and the pattern of life that leads to sin. Do you, do you understand what makes conversion necessary is the fact 
that we are enslaved to and by sin. The very fact that we need conversion. See, again, the person may say, well, you know, I know I've got a few things wrong with me. I got to be. Look, according to the Bible, we are dead in our sins and trespasses. We are enslaved to sin. It's not just we have a few things bad with us. We're just bad in general, you know? And so the reason we need to be converted in the first place is because we are enslaved by the power of sin. And according to the scriptures, Christ died to set us free from the power of sin. And for conversion to be authentic, there must be a confrontation with sin and a turning from it. A great example of this is found in the book of Acts chapter 2. It says, now when they heard this, they were cut to the heart. Now what did they hear? They heard the gospel. They heard the message of Jesus Christ. They heard of his crucifixion. They heard of his death. They heard who he was. They heard of his resurrection. Said when they heard this, what does it say? They were cut to the heart. Man, I tell you what, you, you, you know this. There are, people, there are people that can sit through, they can sit through, you, you can present the gospel, you can present the loving wonder of the cross and the resurrection of the cross and, 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 and just like, come on, man, come on. I got to go, I got to eat, I got to, you know, and it's just, you know, these folks, they were cut to the heart. Have you been cut to the heart? Have you been confronted by your sin? They were confronted by their sin. It goes on to say, they said, brothers, what shall we do? You see, they were struck by the realization of their guilt before God. It wasn't they just had a few things wrong with them. They were cut to the heart and realized we're guilty before God. And so what is the remedy? What's right there? Brothers, what shall we do? Repent and be baptized. Repent and be baptized. You see, without faith and repentance, there is no genuine biblical conversion. Without faith and repentance, it will lead to a false conversion. And I want you to see on the overhead, someone put it this way, a false convert is one who is excited about heaven but bored by Christians in the local church. I just want to get to heaven. <laughs> Whatever it takes to avoid hell, sign me up. But I don't want Christian brothers and sisters. I don't want nothing to do with the church. That's a false conversion. You can put that in the bank. It's also one who thinks heaven will be great whether God is there or not. Ooh, I bet the fishing up there is going to be good. <laughs> Heaven's going to be great whether God's there or not. Uh, or a false conversion is a person is like, Je they like Jesus, but they did not sign up for the rest. Obedience, holiness, discipleship, suffering. A false con convert is bothered by other people's sins more than his or her own. Let me stop here. Are you converted? Have you experienced biblical conversion? Well, okay, the, the, just briefly, the human and divine aspect of this. Um, look at verse 4 with me. Notice it, they, they've been describing in detail the conversion. They're, 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 they're rejoicing over people coming to faith and repentance in Christ. In verse 4, it says, When they came to Jerusalem, they were welcomed by the church and the apostles and the elders, and they declared all that God had done. All that God had done. Now, now my question is, why didn't they stop and go, Man, 
weren't, weren't those Gentiles really smart people? You know, I've heard it put this way before. I've heard people say, oh, I, I tell you what, I was out there in sin, but I got smart and come to Jesus. So really, did you, did you, did you just get smart? Was that what it is? Was that all it was? You just got smart. No, all that God had done. Friend, if you follow the breadcrumbs back to the origin of your conversion, give glory to God. All that God has done. See, the gospel, the good news is God's gospel. It's not yours. It's not mine. It's not the church's. It's God's. And the means of conversion begins with the gospel message. Look at these words with me in Romans chapter 10. So faith comes from hearing and hearing through the word or, or the preaching or the message of Christ. If you, if you ever hope to have biblical faith, what, what's real and genuine and biblical, it will come because of God's gospel, because of what he has done for us in Christ. Faith is generated by it. Faith comes alive by hearing the message of Christ. And so the human, listen, the human aspect of conversion, once again, is repenting, believing, and acting upon the promised forgiveness that is in Christ. One last thing I want to consider, and this, you know, I'd like to spend a lot more time on this than I'll be able to, but um, we've asked the question, what is conversion? And there's two components, repentance and faith. The human aspect of it and the divine aspect of it. But here's, here's a question we really need to spend a few minutes on. And that is why do converted people sometimes look unconverted? I want you to see two pictures. Here's a stack of steel and a steel wheel. Um, there's a process that took place to get that steel into that form. It's called conversion. They converted the steel into that form of a wheel. If you're here today and, and you think, okay, Christian conversion looks like that, then you've missed the point. You've missed the point of what con Christian conversion is. In Christian conversion, this is not what we see right now. We don't see this raw, this raw material, and all of a sudden, boom, there it comes. There's, there's this pristine wheel. Perfect. That, that's, that's not Christian conversion. That's not what we see now, okay? See, in Christian conversion, we enter into a process called sanctification. Sanctification is a work of the Holy Spirit of turning us into the people whom God says we already are. You've read the Bible before, right? And you've read Corinthians, it says, to the saints at Corinth. If you've ever read anything about the, the people at Corinth, you'd think they are far from saints. They were messed up. They had a lot of problems as believers. They didn't look converted at times. But yet, God says they're mine. They're saints. This has nothing to do with the Roman Catholic Church, by the way. Okay, All believers at Corinth were saints. All believers at Thessalonica were saints. All believers at Calvary Christian Center are saints. Sanctification is that process where the Holy Spirit is working to turn us into 
gradually, a process of what we already are declared to be. We're already saints, already holy ones. And the Holy Spirit is, is gradually turning us into that. And there's another verse that comes to my mind. Uh, for, for it is God who uh, begun this work in you, begun. And he will what? Continue it until the day of Jesus. Process, right? So, so Christian conversion is not this, not now. We're not the wheel now. So here's what this means. Now listen very closely and you've got to stay with me and I promise I'll bring this to a quick end. What this means is that during this process of sanctification, converted people will sometimes look unconverted. I've told this story before, and if you've heard it before, I'm sorry, but you know, perhaps it'll help someone today. Catherine and I became Christian converts in late 1980. Three months after we were converted, we were on a drive to Elizabethtown, Kentucky we began to get into a terrible argument. And the argument really got heated and we both said some things and we used some language that we were formerly very, very used to. We pulled the car over to the side of the road and we both began to weep. A couple of reasons. One, we had wounded one another, but even worse, we had wounded God. We had failed. We had failed miserably, and we knew it. And we were kind of like, where did this come from? What, what happened? I, I thought we were converted. I thought we went forward and, and gave our lives to Jesus and were baptized as his followers. I, what, what, what happened? If somebody had come, if somebody had come up to the car at that time, it would have looked like and sounded like we were unconverted. But they might have missed something. Because you see, as we sat there weeping, and we were devastated. We did not, of course, in 1980, early 1980, we didn't have cell phones. So we found a, a pay phone. And the only person I knew to call was my aunt. Uh, we, we went to church with my aunt, and I called her up and was weeping over the phone. And I told her what, what uh, had happened. And, and she, uh, she said to me, why, why are you so upset? Why are you crying? I said, don't you understand? Here's what happened. Here's what we did. And we're so ashamed. And she said, Van, just a minute. Did you feel this way before you were converted? You know, when you went on a tear and you, you tore into Kathy and, and, and you said all these kind of things and you did all these kind of things, you know, did it bother you? Were you, were you upset at all? Did, it, did you cry? Did you weep? Was you torn? Was you in agony over it? I said, no, no. And she said, Van... This agony that you're facing, this conflict that you're feeling right now, this disappointment, the sadness you feel over what you've done, it's evidence of your conversion. It's evidence of the Spirit of God now living within you. Because before, when we, when we did these kind of things, we didn't think about it. Then bothers. But now we're weeping in agony, broken because we have disappointed our Lord. You see, here's what I'm saying. For the converted person, there is the war, the conflict, the hatred of the sin that they formerly loved. There is an ongoing struggle against it. They're no longer cozied up to it. 
They no longer respond as if it doesn't really matter. They're broken over their failures. And they're warring against sin. And the struggle against sin does not mean that you don't love Jesus. It's an indication that you do love Jesus. Do you understand that? Now, friend, for the person, for the person who's like, they can just sin and it just rolls off their back and they just don't care. But I was saved once. Look at these verses with me. 1 Peter chapter 2. Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh which wage war against your soul. Abstain, that's another word for fight. Fight. There's a war going on. Fight. Converted man, converted woman. Fight. Abstain from the passions of the flesh. First Peter chapter 4, verse 2. Look at it this way. Live for the rest of the time in the flesh, no longer, no longer for human passions, but for the will of God. Now listen very carefully. You say, look, once I've saved, I'm always saved. Some preacher told me, once I'm saved, I'm always saved. Listen, listen to me. The gospel certainly means we stop earning The gospel of Jesus is good news that we stop earning. But it does not mean we stop fighting. Instead of saying, I'm once saved, I'm always saved. How about saying it the biblical way? Once I'm saved, I abstain. Once saved, I live for the will of God. Once saved, I continue in the faith. Say it that way because that's exactly how the scriptures put it. When Paul looped back around on his missionary trip, he didn't say, hey, once saved, always saved. You just live whatever way you want to. No struggle, no war. No, he said, continue in the faith. So conversion, listen to me. Conversion is not the absence of struggles and warring against sin. Rather, it's the freedom to choose holiness in the midst of your struggles. Are you struggling? Are you struggling? Friend, if you're not struggling and warring against sin and you've got comfortable and gone to bed with it, it may just be you're not converted. It just may be that you're not converted. Have you been converted? Have you been converted? Have you repented? Have you turned from sin? I'm not asking if you're perfect. I'm not asking that. I'm asking you, have you said, look, no more of that way, that way of life. I'm not going that way. I may stumble. I mean, my stumbles. I'll have my times of confessing my sin and, 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 and getting things dealt with with God and with others. But look, I'm done. I'm done with going that way. I've turned, put personal faith in Jesus Christ. Have you been converted? Secondly, have you talked to anybody about your faith? Let me, let me put it this way. Very often I have a spouse who will say about another spouse, I don't know. I don't know about my spouse. I, I mean, they come to church with me, and, but you know, I never hear them talk about Jesus. I never hear them talk about the hope that they have. I never talk, hear them talk about spiritual matters. And and and, Pastor, I'm worried. I don't know. I I just don't know about my spouse. I don't know. Do, so, do those in your life 
Those who are really important to you, do they, do they know where you stand? Do they know where you stand with Christ? Or are they just standing there and just muddled thinking like, I don't know. I mean, they come to church and, the, you know, but I never, I never hear them talk publicly about their faith. I never hear them share their faith. I never hear them pray. I never hear them do any spiritual things. Friend, don't let them be standing around your casket, around your graveside, scratching their head, wondering. I wonder, I wonder where they really stood with Christ. Go public. If it's real, if it's genuine, go public. Now, there's no, there's no secret Christians. Undercover, you know. No. Go public. Have you come out? Have you been baptized as one of his followers? Look, I'm almost done. I don't apologize. I don't apologize for standing here. Having been your pastor for 24 years and actually say, have you been converted? Because, friends, I keep my ear to the ground and I know that churches, churches have many people who are unconverted. They do. And so I'm just, I'm, just, I'm just getting up in it. Just getting up in it today. Have you been converted? If you haven't, if you're sitting here today, you know, and, and God's been dealing with your heart. Now, I said last week, prayer, a prayer cannot save you. However, if your heart is in a place, if your heart's in a place where you want to cross the threshold, said, look, I want to I turn from my sin. I'm ready to turn from my sin and turn to Jesus. You'll see a prayer on the overhead that might help you. Maybe this, is, maybe this is an expression, a genuine expression of your heart. And so as we come to a close, let's look at this prayer for a moment. God in heaven, I am sincerely convicted of my sin, and I know I deserve your wrath. Yet I plead for your mercy on the merits of Jesus Christ. Today, I turn from my sin and turn to Jesus Christ to put my trust in him and to follow him. If that, if that, is a, if that reflects the genuineness of your heart, and you pray that prayer, you say, look, I'm, I just want to get sincere with God today about this matter. If you do cross the threshold today, why don't you tell somebody? Why don't you tell the person that's really important to you? You start with your spouse, your mom, your dad, your boyfriend, girlfriend, whatever it may be. But let them know, here's where I stand. I'm not ashamed of this. I'm not, I'm not ashamed. I'm, I'm, I'm going public for Jesus. If you haven't been baptized, call me this week. Would you do that? We'll talk about this matter, being baptized. So would you stand with me? Heads are bowed. And, and if, you're, if that prayer's still up, just keep that prayer up there for a moment. If you're here today and that prayer again is a reflection of your heart, you pray that prayer, and that's real to you, so this is really a reflection of the genuineness of my heart right here, these words. And I've talked to God. I've prayed these today genuinely. I want to help you. Your heads are bowed. I just want to help you in this way. If, if you prayed this prayer today, and this is, this is genuine for you, I just want to ask you for, for, a beginning, for a beginning start communicating this to others. I just want to ask you to do this. If you prayed this prayer, you just slip up your hand real high so I can see it. Put it back down. I see that hand. I see that hand. Just put it up. Put it back down. Any others today? Any others who would say, you know, this is where I'm at today. I've crossed the threshold from unbelief to belief, from faithlessness to faith, coming to Christ today. Slip up your hand, put it back down. 
think about those around us who may need to hear the gospel that we've heard this morning. We may be the instrument, the one who declares the word that they might hear and believe. So let's pray this prayer together as we go. Lord God Almighty, send us out in the power of the Holy Spirit to declare the good news of salvation through Jesus Christ. Amen.